All right, guys, uh, I, I really love, I really do love and enjoy preaching and teaching God's Word. It's a gift the Lord has given me. I just want to thank you all for the opportunity here. I, I really do enjoy preaching these messages. and A lot of work goes into it, but when you enjoy your work, that's a blessing. You know, it's a sad that so many people have a job that they despise. You know, they get a job you enjoy, or if you're a Christian, learn to enjoy it. Enjoy it in spite of your circumstances. And uh, it's a blessing when you love what you do. Um, it's strange to me, thinking about some of the prayer requests this morning, and, and including that young couple that, that Beth brought up, it's strange to me how... In our society, those who sell alcohol to a minor, you know, perhaps it was unwittingly. You know, perhaps somebody just in the moment didn't think to ask for an ID. But they'll, they'll be pursued and hounded and arrested immediately. And then it's as if the young man who illegally purchased it and who went driving and got killed, it's as if he has no fault whatsoever. Strange. When, yet last week we went down to the animal shelter in Lincoln County, and I noticed a big sign on the wall, $5,000 reward to anyone with information about cockfighting, 5000 bucks, and it had a picture of an ugly rooster just staring at you on there, um, and $5,000 reward for any information about cockfighting, but an abortion doctor can rip a little baby out of a womb even after the mother's in labor and no problem, no big deal. Do you guys remember years ago when the FBI and the, the uh, CIA came down here in western North Carolina and relentlessly pursued Eric Rudolph? Rudolph's the one that blew up an abortion clinic. I think it was in Atlanta. I can't No, the Olympics were in Atlanta. They tried to connect him to that. But he blew up an abortion clinic, and there wasn't supposed to be anybody there when he blew it up. He purposely did it when no one was around. But I think there was a night guard and one of the nurses that were having a hookup, an affair, that happened to be in there, and they lost their lives. Bible's clear, be sure your sin will find you out. But man, they, they poured so many resources and so much manpower in the western part of this state for the longest period of time to try to locate this one man. But yet politicians in high power can commit open treason. And if they have a Democrat beside their name, nothing happens. And that's backwards. It's funny that after all those resources, they never could find him. And the only reason he ever got captured is he was digging through a dumpster and a policeman saw him. And the policeman was just questioning, you know, wanting to tell him, you, you can't be here. You're not supposed to be doing this. He thought he was caught, so he turned himself in. It's funny to me how in this country, a yearbook photo that shows someone dressed up like a black man in a black man costume with blackface with his arm around a guy dressed up in a KKK hood, causes more outrage than something the person dressed, dressed up said a couple days ago about why babies should be able to be aborted after they're born. It's insanity. 
you know, that, when that wicked governor who, who went on and on and on about his opponents not condemning white supremacy during their election, what a hypocrite. When that wicked governor said what he did last week about babies, I prayed that God would destroy him and his family. I prayed these things. I asked God to destroy him and to bring him down. And I think we as Christians should and can pray that way against the wicked. And suddenly, a yearbook photo pops up, and now the people that were his best friends yesterday want him, want him, want him gone. Your sin will find you out, and the wicked will destroy themselves. They eat their young, and these are good things. That's why the righteous should stand back and let vengeance be God's and not ours. I don't think that photo's a big deal. It's obvious a couple people are having a little fun. What's a big deal is what that wicked, vile piece of rotting fruit thinks is okay to do to little babies. But God can bring you down. And God can bring false outrage from hypocrites far more racist than He is to do it. And that's when we sit back and praise the Lord. Be sure your sin will find you out. I was thinking about Isaiah 59 because it comes up in my message today. And it's written about Israel. She's brought to her utter end the corruption. The society is so corrupt, nothing can fix it. And so Messiah has to come. There's no one there to intercess, so he comes and fixes it. And Israel is described as a society where judgment is turned away backward and justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. Is that not a picture of our society? There is no justice. There is no equity. Yea, truth faileth. And he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. Those of us that stand and depart from evil, we're a prey in this society. And the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him. And his righteousness, it sustained him. Jesus asked a rhetorical question in his ministry. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith upon the earth? That's the question. Justice stands afar off in our society, and it displeases the Lord. When we think about what this country needs to do to get right with God, we need to back up in that chapter because the Lord is very clear to Israel in the first two verses that his hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. He can save and he can hear our cries. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. God doesn't hear because our sins as a nation have separated us from him. There's only one remedy and it may be too late for that. It was too late for Israel when Nebuchadnezzar came. But there's only one possible remedy, and that's national repentance. And we need to pray. Maybe this governor, when he's trashed and betrayed by the people that in his own party, maybe he'll repent. Maybe he'll fear and repent. Maybe our politicians will fear and repent. That's why we've got to pray that God will destroy them 
and bring them to their end. This country is so wicked. There are people in power. I read an article a, a while back where this attorney general that's up for a nomination, um, him and his, his wife and Robert Mueller's wife go to a Bible study together. Are you kidding me? These people are going to Bible studies? What do they read? What do they pray? I mean, are they really that blind? These people are wicked, and God does not hear their prayers, and he does not hear the prayers of a nation offered up in the Senate or the House or wherever they are because our iniquities have separated between us and him. And the day is going to come when there is none to stand, there's no intercessor, and that's where the Messiah comes. And that's where it's made right. So though justice stands afar off, One day justice will be served. And that's what we're reading about here in Revelation chapter 19. In the original language, what's in a name? You know, names have meaning. Words have meaning. In martial arts, a lot of times people study the Japanese or the Korean names for certain katas or techniques because they think there's a certain stupid mystical power in being able to recite some Japanese or some Korean language. And they never really care what it means. I like to look into names of different principles and techniques for what they mean because what they mean sheds light on how they're supposed to be done. It's the same thing with people's names. The Old Testament, they meant something. It's the same thing with the names of books of the Bible, Names have meaning in what's in a name. The book of Revelation in the original language of the New Testament, which was the Koine Greek, not the Attic Greek of the scholars, but the Koine Greek of the common man. The title of the book in the Greek New Testament is Apocalypsis. It's where we get the word apocalypse. And when we think of apocalypse, we think of death and destruction and judgment. But what that word means is an unveiling, a revealing. Revelation is the unveiling of Messiah. It's the revealing of the very thing that's spoken about there in Isaiah 59. I like reading the Bible in other languages. Not because I think other translations and other languages are necessarily perfect or this is better than this or that the English Bible as preserved by God and given to us in this King James Bible is not sufficient. It's completely sufficient. But I like to read and study the Bible in other languages to just get a full and deep understanding. And something as simple as the name of the book says a lot. In Spanish, the word... For Revelation is apocalypsis, apocalypse, just like in Greek. In Nepali, the name of the book is called prakash. Prakash is a word that is used uh, for light, like a sudden shining of light. It can also be used to, to, to denote one who publishes something or the publication of something. When I think of Revelation, I think the, of the publication or the unveiling of true light, which is the Messiah. In Hebrew, I have a hard time with the Hebrew New Testament because a lot of the, 
the vocabulary. I can't find good dictionaries that can shed light on the vocabulary sometimes. And Hebrew in its context, a word can mean something very different. The same word can mean something very different depending on the context. And so you can look up a word in the dictionary and get a dictionary meaning, and then you're reading it in the New Testament, you're like, what in the world? Or the tense of the verb or the, the mood of the verb totally changes it. But in, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew New Testament, we give out to the Israelis the name of the book of Revelation is Chizayon. And that's an interesting word because it can be used to define what we call a phenomenon. And it can be used in reference to a pageant or a play. And when I think about the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ here, it's not a pageant or a play in the sense of something make-believe. It's a pageant... (coughs) In the sense that it's been scripted. It's the acting out of a script that was determined long ago. That no matter what man says or does, the play must go on. The act will close. The pageant will complete. These things are scripted. Nothing can change it. Messiah is coming back. He is the star of the play. He's the main character, and he's coming back as if the script has already been written. It has been written. It's right here in God's Word. Last week, we got through um, verse, I'm, I'm not in, I'm in the book of Acts. What in the world? We got through verse 13 as we began to look at what comes down when the heavens open. We finished our discussion discussion on the heaven, the third heaven, what separates it from the universe below, and how that molten sea of glass will melt and open, and something will come down. He that sits on a white horse or a white charger, verse 11, and behold, I saw heaven open and a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Doesn't fit our definition of Jesus in a lot of cultures nowadays, or a lot of churches nowadays. It's all gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But this is Jesus as he returns. Not emaciated, hanging on a cross, but a king on a white charger, faithful and true, coming to make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, verse 12, and on his head were many crowns, diadems, sovereign authority. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He's got a name, just like we will have a name in a white stone that inscribed in the letter to the church at Pergamon. He has a name, but he also has many names. He's called faithful and true. He's got a secret name written. He's clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. So we have three names here already and yet a secret name. Faithful and true, the Word of God will see King of kings and Lord of lords and yet a secret name that no man knows but he himself. Chapter 19, the first 16 verses are in my outline of what I've called the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is more than just the heavens open. It includes the hallelujah chorus, the first seven verses. The marriage of the Lamb, verses 8 through 10. And now the unveiling 
This is literally the apocalypsis, the apocalypsis, the prakash, the chizayon, right here. The heavens open. This is the climax of the pageant that's been scripted from eternity past. I want to look today at the simple phrase at the end of verse 13. His name is called the Word of God. In a mysterious way, the living Word of God who comes down from heaven, the prakash, the unveiling light, the living, breathing Messiah, in a mysterious way, the living Word equals the written Word, the Holy Bible. They are inseparable. So here we have the living Word of God with a name, and His name is the Word of God. When we use the term Word of God or we see Word of God in the Bible, it refers to the written Word of God. And yet in John 1, we're told that that Word of God, that spoken, written down Word became flesh, and here that Word that became flesh is called the Word of God. I think it behooves us to examine this relationship. Because when we study the scriptures, it's amazing to me how many qualities the Messiah and the Word of God, the Bible, share. They're described in almost the exact same way in many facets. And yet, we live in a time where Christians are teaching that you can follow and love Jesus and yet the Bible is not that big of a deal. Yet the Bible is antiquated. The Bible doesn't apply to us anymore. Heck, there are Christians out there that believe one way their entire lives. I've got family members like this. The scripture is very plain about homosexuality being a sin. It's very plain about women pastors. It's very plain about a lot of things. And you've got people that believe this and then suddenly one day... Their daughter claims she's called by God to preach or their son comes home and says, guess what, Dad, I'm gay. And then suddenly the Bible's not important anymore. It never really meant that. It means something else. That's the way people are today. If you can have a nonchalant attitude about the Scriptures like that, the written Word of God, then I don't think you know the living Word of God. I don't think you've ever met Him and I don't think you have a clue. The two are inseparable. The first place that people are referred to as Christians in the Bible was not in Jerusalem. And it was not by Jews. Where was it? Antioch, where the gospel began to take root amongst the Gentiles. Paul the Apostle was saved on the road to Damascus. Jesus said, go to Damascus and there I'll tell you what to do. He gets there, he's blind, he can't see anything, and it's three whole days before Ananias comes and prays over him. God told Ananias to go pray over Saul because Saul's praying. So you had the Lord tell him to do something and then I guess Saul figured I'm going to find out pretty quick what that is and then he goes and sits in darkness for three days. When Ananias comes, he says, Brother Saul. Saul's, Saul's already been saved by then. His eyes are open, he's baptized. And then immediately he starts preaching Christ in the synagogues. First thing he did. He's there in Damascus. We learn from Galatians that uh, he leaves and goes to Arabia. And then he comes back to Damascus and he begins to be a powerful preacher there. But three whole years go by before he ends up in Jerusalem and meets Peter and James for the first time. 
Three whole years go by. And then he goes back. He starts preaching. He's only in Jerusalem for two weeks. And then he gets run out of there. He's already been run out of Damascus. He has to be let down from a basket, from the wall in a basket. He's run out of Jerusalem and he has to be whisked out of town on his, through Caesarea, up through Antioch, and then goes back to Tarsus, his hometown. And then it's another seven years, approximately, before Barnabas goes looking for him and bringing him back to Antioch. And when he brings him back to Antioch, they're there an entire year before they take the missions offering that Gentiles took up for Jewish people back to Jerusalem. And it's at that time when Paul has been found by Barnabas and brought back to Antioch that the believers are first called Christians. And these that were first called Christians were those that carried the word of God, that preached the word of God, that taught the word of God, and that believed the word of God. And yet we want to claim, we want to usurp the word Christian just like we've usurped the word marriage. We want to change the word marriage and say, oh, it can mean a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Oh, Christian can mean somebody that loves Jesus but doesn't care about the Bible. Are you kidding me? You can't just change a word. But that's the insanity that we live in today. You know, it's interesting to study the life of Paul. That's what I'm trying to do with my kids, my wife. God's not in a hurry. When God calls you to do something, he's not in a hurry. Mm -hmm. Moses was 40 years old when he fled Egypt and went into the desert. He was in the desert for 40 years before God spoke to him through the burning bush. Mm -hmm. And it was the last 40 years of his life he served in ministry. So he had to live 80 before God used him for 40. God called Paul on the road to Damascus probably about 31 A.D. And it was three years before he really got to preaching in Damascus. And it was another 14 years before Acts chapter 15. So between Acts 9 and 15, 14 years, God was not in a hurry. Paul ended up going back home for seven years before God used him. Guys, God's not in a hurry. His word's not in a hurry. It stands true forever. Jesus is not in a hurry. He's going to come exactly when he means to. And let's keep that in mind in our lives. When we have down times, when things don't go the way they should, God's not in a hurry. You guys went out on the streets on Friday night, not much going on, didn't get to preach. God's not in a hurry. Big deal. One conversation. We ought to quit looking at those things as minimum and consider them great opportunities. The church went wrong long ago when it started looking at numbers. God's Word doesn't look at numbers. I'm getting off on a tangent. First Christians, first uh, believers were called Christians in Antioch and they were tied to the Word of God. I want to look a little bit at the common characteristics that the written Word of God and the living Word of God share. And in doing so, I want to go really quickly over to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24, we have one of five instances of the Great Commission in the New Testament. We're all familiar with Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the scope of the great, or the, uh, the, um, uh, the goal of the Great Commission, which is making disciples and building up local churches. We've got Mark 16, 15, and 16. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's the scope. Not just here, not just there, everywhere. 
And verse 16, you can't leave out. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Our responsibility, go into all the world and preach. God's problem, saving and damning. The results are God's. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. That's God's problem. Then you've got John 20, 21. Jesus said, as my Father sent me, I send you. That's the badge of authority that we wear when we carry out the Great Commission. Acts 1, 8, the strategy beginning at Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, then the uttermost part of the earth. To be faithful to the Great Commission, we've got to start here at home. In our own town, like these gentlemen the other night. In our own neighborhood. If we can't be faithful there, how can we be faithful at the end of the globe? I had to learn that the hard way. Paul learned it in Tarsus for seven years. I learned it the hard way here for seven years. But in Luke 24, we see the message of the Great Commission. And this is what gets left out. And it's inextricably tied to the Word of God. Everybody wants to talk about Matthew 28, 19, 20. Go ye therefore and make disciples. Go and preach. But what is it we're supposed to preach? Tolerance? Adam and Eve and Adam and Steve? I mean, is that what we're supposed to preach? No, the Bible tells us what we're supposed to preach. Right here in Luke 24. Jesus, notice the context here. It's, he appears to his disciples after his resurrection. And in front of them, he says, look at my hands and feet. A, a spirit does not have flesh and bones, but I do. And then they gave him a piece of fish and a honeycomb and he took it and ate before them. This wasn't a spirit or a ghost. It wasn't flesh and blood, it was flesh and bones. Our resurrected body, like our Lord's, doesn't have blood. We don't need blood. We have flesh and bones and we can eat. John says that we'll be like him in our resurrected bodies. And then he said unto him, These are the words which I spake unto you, verse 44, while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses in the prophets and the psalms concerning me. So right away, he talks about the importance of the written word of God being fulfilled in him. And at that time, the written word of God was the law, the Torah, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the psalms or the writings, the Ketubim, the three parts of the Hebrew Bible. That's where we get the word Tanakh. Tanakh is a word that was... That's, it's an abbreviation word. It means Torah, Nevi'im, Ketubim. Law, Prophet, Psalm. Here Jesus ties the written word of God, the Old Testament, directly to him. The living word. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Then the living word opens the eyes of his disciples so they could understand the written word. And he said unto them, this is where the Great Commission is phrased here. Thus it is written. Why are you to go preach? Why are you to say what you're going to say? Why have I raised from the dead? Why are you my witnesses? Because it is written. Here the Great Commission is tied specifically to the written word of God. To the Bible. Jesus told these same disciples. 
the ones to whom he connected the Old Testament to himself, he told these same disciples that when the Holy Spirit would come at Pentecost, 50 days after, I mean, 10 days after his, uh, his ascension, that he would bring to their mind, their remembrance, everything they had seen and heard. And that, that the Holy Spirit would show them things to come. And then these men would write down the New Testament. Jesus proclaimed the New Testament, which, would, which had already been prophesied in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31. God tells Israel, the day is coming when I'm going to give you a New Testament. A Berit Chadashah. That's what's printed on the front of the Hebrew New Testament. It is written. It's tied to the Great Commission. Thus it is written. And because it is written, and thus, therefore, it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Why did Messiah have to suffer and rise from the dead? Why did the living word have to go to a cross, be buried and raised from the dead? Because the written word said so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. The message of the Great Commission is repentance and forgiveness of sins because Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead. And it behooves us to preach these things because it is written. We're to be witnesses, not just of Jesus, the living word, but of the Bible, the written word. You cannot separate the written word from the living word and the great commission. And you can't separate it in the church. You can't separate the two in your, in your walk with Christ or your testimony. And the scriptures never separate the two. Let's look at some common qualities that both of these share. Just to remove any doubt. If there's any doubt in your mind that these are in a mysterious way, one and the same. Let's remove that doubt. Both the written word, and get, guys, this is, kids, this is where you can write stuff down. I know you can write five because what I've got coming is 20 points. I may get through it today, I may not. Both the written word and the living word are eternal. Not because I said so. This is the testimony of the scriptures. The living word. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Not was a little g God. Like the Jehovah's Witness Watchtower translation does in John 1. Talk about murdering the Greek language. What the JWs do to John 1.1 is just as bad as what our society does to the word marriage. You cannot make the Greek language say that. The word was God. It was in the beginning. It was with God and it was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him... And without him was not anything made that was made. So here we have the Logos, the Word of God, is referred to as a hymn. There in verse 3. But it's not until verse 14 that we're told, and the Word was made flesh, 
and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The living word is eternal. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Word of God, He is eternal. 1 John 5, 7, the great Trinitarian passage that almost every single English translation has murdered except for our good old King James. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. The living Word of God is eternal. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 is a a passage that we always read around the Christmas holidays. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 is an amazing prophecy that long before Christ was born that says Messiah will come to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a very insignificant place. Very insignificant. Not important at the time this was written. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah... Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. But guess what? Messiah is no mere man. We always stop reading there. Whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. The living word of God who was born in a manger of Bethlehem, in Bethlehem, his goings are from old. He is from everlasting. He is eternal in the prophecy that we also look at around the Christmas holidays in Isaiah 9 for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor the mighty God the everlasting father he's eternal I don't know how how you can look at that passage of scripture as a Jewish teacher of the Old Testament, and not believe or see that Messiah is God Himself. How do you do that? But that's called spiritual blindness. And spiritual blindness is a judgment from God that only God can remove. And He'll do it if we humble ourselves and repent. Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, 8, the same today, yesterday, and forever. The living word of God, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, is eternal. But not only is he eternal, the written word of God is eternal. Psalm 119.89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It's not only in existence forever, it's settled. That's why Jesus is... Return can be spoken of almost as a pageant because it's settled. The script's been written. Forever settled, the written word is described. In Isaiah 48, it talks about the grass withers, the flower falls off, the glory of man fades away, but the word of the Lord endures or abides forever. What God has said, what's been written down by the prophet in that context. 1 Peter 1.23 quotes Isaiah, says the same thing. The word of the Lord which abides forever. The living word, the written word, they're both eternal. Both of them have a unique power that man does not have. Man has the power to fashion things, to make 
things, to invent things, to refine or perfect things. And he has the ability to discover things. But man has not the power to create. We throw that word create around flippantly. To create something is to make it, as they used to say in Latin, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Man can't create out of nothing. Man can only discover. Scientists can't invent things that aren't built upon the knowledge of those that have come before and ultimately go back to something that's uncaused, God's creation. They come up with all their theories about the Big Bang and the, the uh, age of the earth, all of this, and it all goes back to a problem. The question being, where did what you say, where did the Big Bang come from? Where did the earth come from? They don't have an answer. It's the uncaused cause. And sometimes their theories that they treat as fact are ba based on such scant evidence. But we're so blind and we're such sheeple that we just bah with the blinders on believe everything we hear. But both the written and the living word of God have the power to create ex nihilo out of nothing. What does the Bible say about itself? The living word of God. Hebrews chapter 11. This used to be my favorite chapter for reading on a hike. I don't know why. I think a guy I used to hike with loved to and I just kind of picked it up. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. The world was not made of pre-existing substances. It was created, it was framed by the word of God, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Psalm 33 speaks not of the worlds as Hebrews does here, but of the heavens. Psalm 33, um, verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made... And all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. By the spoken word. The spoken word that's been written down. The written word of God has the power to create. It's a creator. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 5. By the word of God the heavens were of old. And the water standing in the world. And the uh, earth standing in the water and out of the water. A lot of people teach that's talking about Noah's flood. I think it's talking about the very things we were discussing last week concerning the heavens and the firmament. I think it's referring to things that took place between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. One man's opinion. The written word, a creator. So is the living word. So is the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1. I'm going to let you guys help me. Uh, Jason, will you look up Colossians 1, 15 through 17? <laughs> Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. 
powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Goes on to say in the next verse, and he is the head of the body, the church. This is Jesus Christ, the living word. By him, all things were made, just like John 1 says. And it's by him that all things consist or are held together. If Jesus let go of his hold on creation, it would all fall apart. The living word creates. The written word creates. Both are eternal. Both are creators out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Both are tried by fire. Let's look at Daniel chapter 3 for a moment. Nebuchadnezzar the king makes an image, sets it up in the plains of Dura, commands the image to be worshipped. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down. They're cast into a fiery furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar sees something that takes him by surprise. Daniel 3, 24 and 25. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished. That's a great old King James word, astonished. Not just astonished, but what in the heck am I looking at? Astonished. And rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. It's funny, some of the modern versions want to take away this reference to the living word, and they say, they translate the Aramaic here as Son of the Gods. But what's funny is the Aramaic word, Elohon, which is the Aramaic form of the Hebrew Elohim, is plural. But every time we see the name God in the Old Testament, unless the context is clearly talking about idols, it's in the plural and we translate it God. And the Aramaic word here in this part of Daniel, the parts of Daniel that address the Gentiles are written in Aramaic or Preserved in Aramaic, the language of the trade language of the Babylonian Empire. The parts that deal with Israel in specific are in Hebrew. But the Aramaic word is the same as the Hebrew word Elohim, it's plural, and we translate it God. Singular. God has a plurality of existence, not multiple gods, one God and three persons. So why do we got to take out the reference to Christ here? You're violating what you've done everywhere else. If you're going to say little g gods here, like I think the NIV does, then why the, why the heck would you not just say in the beginning, God's, little g, God's created the heaven and earth, same word. The context is clear. What Nebuchadnezzar saw was the Son of God, the living Word of God, who came and intervened on behalf of those faithful. Those faithful. It's funny when you consider... This story, we often think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as just Hebrew children in captivity, just faces in the crowd, faces in the crowd who refused to bow down. And then they were threatened and they said, King, you know, the God who we serve is able to deliver us. 
to keep us out of this furnace. But if not, we're not bowing down to your gods. Now, God delivered them. The Son of God delivered them, but they needed to be cast into the furnace first. And that made the deliverance all the more spectacular. But these were not faces in the crowd. If you go back to chapter 2, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And then what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Chapter 2, verse 48. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel was given a position of great political power. Suddenly, this Hebrew captive was a powerful politician. Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not faces in the crowd. At the behest of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar promoted them over all the... They were chief men, chief politicians that had a lot to lose. By taking a stand. These were politicians with positions of power. And yet so unlike Republicans in America today. So unlike Christians today who have a secure job. Who have a comfortable existence. Who've been elected to office. And they'll talk a big talk. But when it comes down to it, they'll compromise. They'll apologize. They'll back away from what they claim to believe. Not these guys. Not these guys. They were politicians who took a stand. They were lesser magistrates who told the chief magistrate, No! Do what you want. We will not bow. Where are these lesser magistrates today? When mayors, when police officers... Our chiefs, when governors, when state legislatures are elected to office, they take an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States and their state constitutions. Where are the lesser magistrates that will tell the federal government, no, we will not murder babies in this state. We will not allow babies to be murdered in this town. Some of them talk a big talk to get elected, and then they get a little letter from some atheist uh, group in Wisconsin saying, oh, you better take that Christian flag down or we're going to see you. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let's get it down. Let's get it down. Man, I wish we had politicians like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego today that would draw a line in the sand and say, no, you will not kill babies in our state and if you want to send the military or the National Guard, bring it. You'll have to get through me first. That's what the South told the North In 1861, we're not going to war against South Carolina. You're not going to send troops. We're not sending our people to fight against our neighbors. If you want to do it, then come on. We'll meet you. And they met him at Manassas Creek. I think it was July 21st, 1861. And the people up north were so arrogant, just like the people today, just like those nasty, rank, rotting fruit liberals today, they're so arrogant. They think they've got it all figured out. And some of the rich and the wealthy politicians went down and got their carriages 
And they went down with their picnic baskets and they sat on the hills outside of Manassas Junction, Virginia, said this war is going to end quickly. And we're going to go have a picnic and watch it. It started and now it's over. Union Army came down, much larger army than what the South had to meet them. And for the first half of the day, it looked like the war would begin and end that day. But then one guy stood there like a stone wall and would not move, bullets flying all around him. A South Carolina general said, let's look at, look at, look at him. He's standing like a stone wall. Let's stand. And then the battle turned, and the Yankee fled for his life. The carriages and the picnic baskets got trampled. The stupid, foolish, arrogant senators who came down there, some of them were captured. And the Yankee got his rear end kicked. And then the war drug on and on and on. God didn't take sides. God didn't take sides in that war. We had to answer for our crimes against God as a nation. Praise God, out of that, good things came. But somebody decided not to take us, or somebody decided not to move, not to capitulate. I'd just like to see one politician today who'd be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were not faces in the crowd, these were men of influence and power. They took a stand. They were thrown into the fire, willing to give their lives. And guess what? The living word stepped in. In fact, when they came out of the furnace, you couldn't even smell smoke on their clothes. It wasn't just that they were spared from burning up. You didn't even smell smoke on their clothes. Last Monday night, a few of us went up to uh, Robert's Mountain House, spent the night up there, no heat, no electricity. We built a fire. It was a great time. Went hiking the next day. All I did was sleep on the floor in my sleeping bag in a room with a small fire burning. And everything smelled like smoke when I came home. These guys were thrown in a furnace and they didn't even smell like it. The living word of God stepped in to save them and thereby was tried by fire. The living word of God was tried by fire. We see it there. The written word of God is also tried by fire. Psalm chapter or Psalm 12. I don't like to say Psalm chapter 12. That's technically incorrect. It's multiple Psalms, so it's Psalm 12. Just like it's Revelation, not Revelations. It's not Revelations like so many people say. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Psalm 12, 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver trot in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The written word of God is tried by fire like silver in a furnace of earth. That's an interesting passage to study and then to go look at the history of the Bible, particularly the English Bible that culminates in the King James 1611. To look at that history and you'll see that what is said here literally took place. Tried by fire. Out of fire, out of persecution, out of the sword, the Bible came into the language that we can understand. And it was refined like silver seven times. I'm not going to get into that today. It's it's amazing how this is literally fulfilled in the history of the English Bible. But it's tried by fire. And God preserves it. God didn't just give the word, he preserved it. You know, the the garbage I would hear in seminary is, yes, God inspired the scriptures, but men corrupted them. 
And now we've got to go back and find what the best translation is. Guys, if God inspired something, then that means by default he preserved it. I mean, why is that so hard for us to comprehend? I'd have a professor who couldn't comprehend that God preserved his word despite Satan's attempts to tarnish it. He couldn't, he couldn't believe that, but yet he would tell us that the Holy Spirit, we could trust that the Holy Spirit led the early church to put exactly what books needed to be in the New Testament. So he could trust the Holy Spirit with the books of the Bible, but he couldn't trust the Holy Spirit with the words of those books. Amazing. These guys had doctorate degrees. They had more degrees than a thermometer and couldn't see basic truth in the Scripture. God says he'll preserve his word. There are four things God promises to preserve. He made him and he'll preserve him. That means man can't destroy him. His creation. Thou preservest them all. Everything you've created, Nehemiah 9. Man won't destroy this planet. God will. He preserves it. His word. He preserves his word. There'll be counterfeits. Satan will twist it. Commentaries will murder it. Bible versions will come out left and right to take away your attention and confuse the mess out of you, but God's preserved word is always there. The church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God promises to preserve his church. Jesus built it, was established at Pentecost, and it's still here today. I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm not talking about an entity. I'm talking about the church. The believer, the remnant body of Jesus Christ that gathers in local church assemblies. Some of the remnant is stuck and caught up in heretical assemblies. Even at Thyatira, the wicked, unrepentant church, Jesus had a remnant. The remnant is sometimes entire bodies, local bodies of believers. Sometimes it's those stuck in bodies of believers that aren't following the Bible and the Word of God. But the remnant's there. It's always there and it will be preserved. Unto the rapture. And then the fourth thing God promises to preserve is the nation of Israel. God told them in Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Praise God, He promises to preserve Israel unto the day. They'll almost be extinguished, but not quite. Messiah will come and rescue them, and God will fulfill all the promises He made to Abraham concerning His seed and the land. But the word is preserved. It's tried by fire. The living word was tried by fire there in front of Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. Nebuchadnezzar was a different man after that. Now it took him being humbled further in Daniel chapter 4 before he realized, before he submitted to God. After Daniel 3, he acknowledged God. After Daniel 4, he submitted to him. There's a lot of people that acknowledge him, but that's not enough. God wants us to submit to him. Not submit in the sense that we're debtors to his justice. In Christ, we're not debtors to his justice anymore. We're debtors to his grace and mercy. Therefore, we should submit. Not the submission that the Muslims claim. In Christ, we're not debtors to his justice. Because Christ paid the fine. We're debtors to his grace and mercy. Both are eternal, both create, both tried by fire, both judge. Half the people that go to church on Sunday morning in this country may as well go to John uh, 
Matthew chapter 7 and circle judge not and then take a pen and scratch through every other, every other word on that paper. Because that's what they act like you can do with the scriptures. Judge not. Judge not. Judge not. Well, my friends, the living word of God is a judge and so is the written word of God. Judgment is a big part of God's work. John 12, 47 through 48. Daniel, if you could read that. Bob, if you'd read Psalm 96, 13. Yes. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. The word spoken and written down. Earlier in verse 26, I mean later in chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus told his disciples that I will make all things come to your remembrance once the Comforter comes. And that's what he did. That's where the New Testament came from. The written word is a judge. It will judge men in the last day when the books are open. Psalm 96, 13. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. What did Jesus say in John 17, 17 as he prayed to the Father? Sanctify them, Lord, with thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word, the written word is what will judge the people. It is a judge. The living word is also a judge. Jesus said in his humanity, in his mission when he came to earth the first time, he didn't come as a judge. He came as a savior. The written word will be the judge. But in his deity, in his unveiling, he is most certainly a judge. Acts 17, 30 through 31, Paul is preaching to heathen philosophers in Athens and tells them that in times past, God has winked at their ignorance, the vanities of worshiping idols. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. We think or we speak of Jesus' sacrifice and his salvation as an offer from God. God is offering you salvation. No, 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 no. Because of what Jesus has done, his death, his burial, his resurrection, God commands us to repent. To repent and believe upon Jesus is not a command, I mean an offer, it's a command. It's an invitation, but it's also a command. God commands men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Jesus' resurrection proved that God accepted his sacrifice and it guaranteed that he would judge the world. 
The living word is a judge. In John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus said that all judgment has been committed to the Son. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment to the Son. Judgment's been delegated by God the Father to the living word, by the written word. Paul says in Romans 2.16, he speaks of the day that God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, the living word. Not just the works, guys. The secrets. You know, the secrets come out from time to time. What blows my mind about this Virginia governor in this yearbook, I praise God when people go search stuff out and expose it. I think it's great. But it really makes the campaign team for his opponent in that election that took place a couple years ago looked like fools. Man, if they would have discovered that and put that out, then that Republican would have won by 20 points. So it shows all of them to be fools. But Jesus will judge the secrets of men. There's no secret that will be hidden. The living word will judge. Paul said, according to my gospel... Remember we talked about the four forms of the gospel, the everlasting gospel. God is the judge. He'll come to judge the world. The the gospel of the kingdom, that Messiah is going to come and set up a kingdom and the world will be restored to the way it was in the beginning. The gospel of God's grace, which is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And then what Paul called my gospel. My gospel was the gospel of God's grace and the additional revelation that was communicated to Paul concerning the church. And so, even the fact that Jesus Christ will judge the secrets of men ought to have an effect on us, the church, even though we've escaped the judgment of God. The living word is a judge. The written word is the judge. Neither the living word nor the written word can be broken. John 19.36 says, this is, uh, talks about Jesus hanging on the cross. And John says, For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. <clears throat> In Israel, what was it? that they were supposed to prepare and not break any bones. The Passover lamb. Christ was our Passover lamb. No bone was broken. He could not be broken. This is the scripture referred to here in John chapter 19, I believe is back in Psalm 34. 19 and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous... But the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones. Not one of them is broken. The only true righteous man is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And he was delivered out of all his afflictions and not a single bone was broken. And this was fulfilled. The soldiers came by. They didn't have to break Jesus' legs. So he would die. He was already dead. And when they pierced his Side with the spear, blood and water came out. 
that means that the pericardium, the muscle or the sac around the heart, which is a watery sac that cushions the heart, had exploded. The weight of sin killed him. His heart exploded. But they didn't break any of his bones. Because the living Word of God cannot be broken. Well, guess what? The written Word of God can't be broken. Jesus, the living Word of God, said it himself in John 10, 35. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. It's funny, Jesus caught the Pharisees in a trap. It's very shrewd. He referred to himself as the son of God and then they condemned him. How can you say this about yourself? This is blasphemy. And then Jesus reminded them in the Psalms that the people God had, chose, had chosen were gods, were as gods, little g gods. And so he cross-references back to that and said, well, well the scriptures say ye are gods, referring to the people of Israel. But that scripture also goes on to say, ye are gods, I've chosen, you are as gods, but you will die like men. So Jesus really caught them in their own trap. But he made it clear the scripture cannot be broken. Israel was chosen. They were as gods in the earth. But they didn't do what they were called to do and they died like men. That's what it says there in the Psalms. But Jesus makes it clear scripture cannot be broken. Now, what I find interesting is that the word for broken here in John 10.35, it's not the same word we see in John 19 about being broken, his bones. But it means broken. The word here in Greek is the very first verb you always learn when you study biblical Greek. It's the verb luo. You learn how to conjugate the verb luo because it's consistent. It's an easy pattern. Kind of like in Spanish, you always learn how to conjugate the verb hablar to speak. Luo is the model verb. It means to loose or to break out. It means to loose or to break. Scripture can't be loosed. It can't be untied. It is what it is. It can't be broken open like a package or a box. It can't be loosed. You can't loose the scriptures and let God out of it. People say, well, you know the Bible is God's word and everything, but you put God in a box. Stop putting God in a box. God can bless homosexual marriage. Two people love each other. Stop putting God in a box with the Bible. Well, my friends, scripture is a package wrapped up in tide that cannot be loosed. God has put himself in a box. God put himself in the box of his word. That's why Psalm 138, 2, David, in a spirit of true worship, says, I will worship toward thy holy temple because thou hast magnified thy word even above thy name. God's magnified his word above his name. Therefore, God has put himself in the box of holy scripture, and that scripture can't be loosed or broken. I've been reading through the book of Deuteronomy. I'm trying to read the whole Old Testament in Spanish. And I came across an interesting passage um, 
this week. I don't think we realize that a lot of the things we do and we virtue signal about came from the Bible. You know, I love these people that are such environmentalists and they want to tell you what you can and can't do in the woods and you got to do this and you got to do that. Some places you got to pack your poop out. You got to put it in a bag and carry it out because they're so worried. But yet you can rip a baby out of its mother's womb. But I found an interesting passage in Deuteronomy 23. Now this chapter opens up with an interesting verse. And it's really interesting to read verses like this in another language. He that is wounded in the stones or has his privy member cut off shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Privy member, interesting. That's an interesting read in Spanish. But later on in that chapter, in verse 13, listen to this. This is what God tells Israel to do. And thou shalt have a paddle upon thy weapon, and it shall be that when thou wilt ease thyself abroad, thou shalt dig therewith, and shalt turn back and cover that which cometh from me. Isn't that interesting? God told Israel, the people, to attach a paddle to their weapon... So that they, when they went out and used the bathroom and defecated, dig a hole and bury it. Don't leave it out there. Wow. Sounds like the leave no trace rules came right from the Bible. God was telling people to bury their poop in the wilderness long before the environmentalists discovered it. And you'll understand why this is a good thing when you go places in Nepal high up in elevation where people have been pooping on the ground for decades and they don't bury it and it doesn't go away. God told him to bury it. But why? For the Lord thy God walketh in the midst of thy camp to deliver thee and to give up thine enemies before thee. Therefore shall thy camp be holy that he see no unclean thing in thee and turn away from thee. Does that mean God couldn't walk through their camp if there was exposed poop on the ground? No. He could, but He said He won't. Bury your excrement because I'm not walking through your camp with your crap all over the ground. That's what God told him. He could, but He wouldn't. So bury it when you use the bathroom in the woods. See, God, it's not that God can't do stuff. It's that God won't. In the same way, God will not do against what he's written in his word. Just like he put himself in a box with the camp of Israel, he puts himself in a box with his word. The scripture cannot be loosed. It cannot be broken. It cannot be separated from God. So the next time someone accuses you of putting God in a box... By standing on the scriptures, just tell him, I don't put God in a box. He put himself in there. And learn to make a trowel part of your hiking gear. And bury it. Some people don't bury it. I like to. It's polite. You got the smear method that the leave no trace talks about. You got rocks. You should bury it. Israel buried it. Israel used running water. Took, took us here in America in the medical field. It, it took us till after the Civil War to figure out that running water was better than standing water. As far as protection from disease. The Bible's a scientific book. 
Both the living word and the written word offer new birth. Neither can be broken. Both are judges. Both are tried by fire. Both are eternal. Both are creators. Both offer new birth. Jesus himself, the living word, spoke to a religious leader in Israel and was astonished that this man, having studied all these things, couldn't see such plain truth. Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto thee, Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. Jesus offered new birth, a spiritual birth. And Nicodemus, a teacher in Israel, couldn't understand these things. Even though the Old Testament is so clear that Israel was to be circumcised in the heart. And if she was not circumcised in the heart, the circumcision of the flesh profited nothing. Circumcision of the flesh was supposed to reflect, it was an outward sign that was to reflect circumcision of the heart, a spiritual birth. God told, spoke of the new birth with Ezekiel. I will take your heart of stone and give, give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. And yet this teacher of Israel couldn't see these things. Because like many of the rabbis today, they're too caught up in fairy tales and stupid stories passed down orally from other rabbis that are ridiculous. And they spend more time thinking about that stuff than they do what's written here. But Jesus, the living word here, offers the religious teacher a new birth, a birth of the Spirit. That's what we need, a new birth. That same living word who's speaking to Nicodemus down in verse 13 says, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in, which is in heaven. So Jesus, the Son of God, is speaking to Nicodemus. And in verse 13, if you have a King James Bible, which is faithful to the Greek here, that Jesus is claiming to be in heaven at the moment he's speaking to Nicodemus. That's another place these modern versions go mess it up. Satan's ever so conniving. A little twist, a little trick here to diminish Jesus' deity. The Son of God was in heaven at the moment he was talking to Nicodemus because the living word is eternal the living word is omnipresent the living word is God in flesh the living word offers new birth so does the written word 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23 says being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The living word offered Nicodemus new birth. New birth comes by the written word of God. Not corruptible seed, but incorruptible seed. Both tied to the new birth. Both the living word and the written word give life. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Kids that are unsaved, that say, please pray that God will save me. Listen up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The living word can give you life. Believe upon him. It's that simple. That word so is so important. It tells us how God loved the world. It doesn't say God loved the world so much. That, that, verb is a, that word is an adverb. He loved the world in this way. He sent his son. It's through the Son of God, the living Word, that we can have God's love. Outside that channel, there is no love. It's wrath. In fact, we'll see later that Jesus says, you can't even know God unless I reveal Him to you. 1 John 5, 11 and 12 says, um, this is the testimony that God hath given unto us eternal life, and that life is in His Son. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son has not life. It's the living word that gives life. But then verse 13 says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So not just he that has the Son has life, but these things that are written, the written word of God, are written so that you may know you have life. The written word gives life. At the beginning of 1 John, John says, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. The living word, the word of life. They handled it. They saw it. They touched it. They fellowshiped with it. They wrote it down as eyewitnesses. And then what they wrote down is written that we may know that we have life when we believe upon the Son of God. Not just the living word gives life, the written word as well. John 6, 63. Jesus says, It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Jesus says the written word is life. Now, the Catholics love this chapter to justify their Eucharist where they believe that the, script, the, 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 the priest can wave his little hand and recite some Latin hocus pocus and the, the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Christ. And they boast of the fact that they're eating the body of Christ and they're drinking his blood. It's a pagan sacrifice. And they often look at Verses 54 and 55, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed and my blood is drink indeed. They zero in on that. But they don't ever read down to verse 63 where Jesus says, The words I'm speaking right now are spirit, and they are life. He is making a spiritual application for new life, which is a spiritual birth. He's not saying that his body, a piece of bread turns into his body. It's so amazing the doctrines that people build by zeroing in on something and they refuse to keep reading. Those that point to Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 
about losing your salvation. They don't ever read. They don't read verse 9. They don't read the rest of verse chapter 10 that talks about an anchor for the soul. The living word gives life. The written word gives life. Paul refers to this in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 verse 16. Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. This is after telling the Philippians to be blameless and harmless in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation against whom you shine as lights in the world. How do we shine as lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse nation? We hold forth the word of life in the Bible. We hold it forth. The written word gives life. Both are immortal. Not only are they eternal, not only do they give life, they are immortal. Let me let some of you guys read. Gene, Matthew 24, 35. Jim, if you'll read Isaiah 40, verse 8. Ronnie, if you'll read 1 Timothy 6, 14 through 16. Go ahead, Jesus' words will not pass away. They cannot die. They are immortal. Even more so than heaven and earth that God promises to preserve. His words will not pass away. Isaiah 48. The grass withers, the flower fadeth, but the word of God shall stand forever. Grass dies, flowers die. Flesh dies, but not the word of God. It's immortal. It stands forever. What about the living word? 1 Timothy 6, 14 through 16. That thou keep his commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who, who is the blessed and all his pro, pro, uh, potentate. Who only hath immortality. The living word is immortal. In Christ we have eternal life. But our immortality is only there because Christ is immortal. Our immortality is not of ourselves. Never can be. If Christ pulls the, lets his hand go, it's all doomed. By him all things considered. The living word is immortal. The written word is immortal. They're both spoken of in the same terminology. And I'll end with this today. Both are truth. Not true. I'm not using an adjective here. Yes, they're both true, but both are truth. They're true because they are truth. Not truth because they're true. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, Definite article there, specific. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No man cometh to the Father but by me. Nobody comes to Christ, or to God, but through Jesus. This same Jesus who called himself the truth referred to the written word as the truth. John 17, 17. Jesus praying to the Father on our behalf. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. It is truth. Not is true, is truth. Psalm 119, the psalmist said, Thy law is the truth. God's law is the truth. We're not under the law. By the law is not personal righteousness. By the law is not being right with God. Because cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things written in this law. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Righteousness is only by Christ, but the law is holy. The law is justice. The law is truth. And that's why we can look to the Bible. That's why we can look to the law of God to know how to fix a country, to know how to run a country, to know how to go to war, because the law of God is truth. The answer for every problem plaguing the United States of America today can be found in the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I make no apology for a single word in those books. Those books tell us how to take care of our elderly. How to respect them. They tell us how to take care of those that are disabled and blind. How to take care of the poor. They tell us about being hospitable to the stranger and how the stranger is to observe the same laws as the citizen. They tell us how to purge a nation of the things that brings God's judgment. They say that rape in the eyes of God is the exact same as murder. And therefore a rapist should be punished as should a murderer. God sees it exactly the same. Rape and murder exactly the same. He's very clear about that in Deuteronomy. God tells us that if a woman is harmed while she's carrying a child and the child is harmed that's inside of her, then the one who harms her is going to pay for each life that is harmed. God's law tells us that what's inside of a woman's womb is a child. And God considers abortion murder. It tells us how to handle the homosexual mafia and the idol worshipers parading around with progressivism and Liberalism tells us how to do it, how to fix it. It's very clear what we should do to wicked kings and politicians that lie to us, that claim to speak in the word. We've got the answer right here in God's law. Here is Moses sculpted, sculpted with the Ten Commandments sitting in stone at the top of the Supreme Court building. And yet we have no clue how to fix these problems because we won't look to the truth. Thy law is the truth. I'm not suggesting the law of God is is righteousness. It was never meant to make a man righteous. But it was meant to show us what is truth and what is justice in the eyes of God. And it serves a purpose in terms of human government. If you want peace and you want safety and you want blessing, then do things God's way as a nation. Thy law is the truth. Psalm 138.2. I've mentioned this already. God has magnified His Word even above His name 
But the whole verse, David says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Uh, 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 David equates God's word magnified is above his name with thy truth. Thy word is truth. Both the living word and the written word are God's truth. It's amazing to me that the religious rabbis and a lot of these people that get caught up in Hebrew roots movements and all of this, they won't say the name of God. They're so holy and righteous that they'll skip over the name of God. They won't say His name because they're so afraid they're going to use it in vain. God never said not to use His name. He said not to use it in vain. We shouldn't be afraid to use the name of God, to call upon the name of God in sincerity and faith. Just don't use it flippantly. But they won't even say it. When they come across the word Jehovah, in Hebrew text, they substitute the word Adonai, Lord. They won't say it. So these rabbis who boast about not saying God's name don't even know His word. And he says he lifts His word above His name. And they, they don't even know His word. Because if they knew His word, they wouldn't be looking for Messiah to come. They'd be looking for Him to return. It's very clear. It's funny how people think they're so righteous and yet they're so wicked. The people that are calling for this governor to resign because of a picture of someone in blackface in a KKK hood, these people virtue signaling about that, I guarantee you, are 10,000 times more racist than this governor ever was. 10,000 times more wicked and evil and hypocritical than this governor. And I prayed for God to destroy him when he said what he said about the little babies, but I kind of feel sorry for him because the people calling for his downfall are a million times more racist. These people that want to call us racist and hate mongers are so full of hate, it's frothing out their mouth and their ears. Stand before these people. Stand with the word of life. Don't flee them. Don't be afraid of them. Because God's word is truth. Let's don't be those who won't say God's name but don't know His Word. I'm going to quit here today. There's so much else. I I feel like it behooves us to make sure we understand that there's an inseparable relationship between the living Word of God, Jesus Christ, and the written Word. We need to be what the Quran refers to us as. The Christians in the Quran are called people of the book. Let's embrace it. We should embrace that. Yes, we are people of the book. They were referred to as people too hung up on the scriptures. See, the people that, that call themselves Christians today and talk about people being hung up on the scriptures don't realize that they're leveling the same accusation against their brothers and sisters in Christ that Muhammad and the Muslims did. In, in the A.D. 700s. Ah, oh, they're people of the book. So be it. Amen. I'm a man of the book. Hobiblios, the book. I'm a man of the book because the living word lives within me. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my words. But we've seen they're both eternal, both create, both tried by fire, both judge. Neither can be broken. Both offer new birth. Both give life. Both immortal. Both are truth. Next week we're going to see that 
Both can be loved. Both can be hated. Both can be despised. Both can be received. Both can be rejected. Both can raise up out of the dust. Both can tell the future. Both have x-ray vision. Both are a giant bear trap that will snap shut on you before you can blink if you're not careful. Both lead to saving faith. You can't worship God without both. And both return to this earth hand in hand to smite the nations. His name is called the Word of God. And guess what? Both are worth suffering and dying for. Jesus is worth suffering and dying for. The Bible is worth suffering and dying for. When John was imprisoned in Patmos at the beginning of Revelation, he was on the aisle for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was imprisoned for the written Word and for the living Word. They're both worth suffering and dying for. Let's be people of the book. Guys, the book tells us that if a man will confess with his mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, he shall be saved. The Bible said, Whosoever, even little children, will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible me so. You kids that aren't saved and want to get saved, call out to the Lord. He'll save you. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this word. Thank you for the written word that reveals the living word. We couldn't know you, Jesus, but for the scriptures that were written down by Jewish people long ago. They gave the world a great gift in obedience to you, and we're grateful. Help us to cherish our Bibles, knowing that they came out of sacrifice and trial and fire. Lord, let us stand and hold forth the word of life the written word of life in these dark days, and may we preach the living word of life. May we be Christians who are people of the book and help us to rebuke those and open the understanding of those that would actually think one could follow and love Jesus and not love the Bible. May we never be ashamed. May we try to put it in people's hands, both Jews and Gentiles. Lord, we long for that day when he that is called the word of God returns and makes things right. Yes, justice stands afar off. But one day justice and mercy will kiss and there will be peace. And we long for that day, Lord. We pray for our, our leaders that you would humble them, that they would, that somebody like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would stand up and draw a line in the sand, a lesser magistrate that says no. And says no and that, and that is delivered. I pray for this governor from Virginia. I just pray that all this madness will bring him to a place of repentance, that he will put his faith in Jesus Christ. And then a governorship of a wicked state that's betrayed its star in both the American and Confederate flags will be of little importance to him. What will be important will be the gospel, just like it was to Paul. He went going to kill and arrest Christians. He met you on the road to Damascus. He didn't kill Christians anymore. He preached Christ straightway in the synagogue. He is the Son of God. If you can do that for Paul, you can do that to even the most wicked amongst us. Lord, I pray that our leaders would be like Nebuchadnezzar, that they would acknowledge God and then that they would submit to you, to God. Bless our food and our fellowship, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.